Welcome to Enemies of the People. A podcast about extremism in the 21st century. Hello, frenemies. It's me, Maria Norris, and welcome to episode 28 of Enemies of the People. If you are a long-time listener to the show, you know how I feel about the UK Prevent program. I have covered Prevent extensively on this podcast, starting with our very first episode with Spencer Ackerman. So it is no secret that I think Prevent is deeply problematic, being both racist and ineffective. Our last three episodes of the podcast in particular give a really great overview of the current state of the Prevent strategy in the United Kingdom, especially when it comes to its deeply Islamophobic roots. So you can imagine my reaction when the draft of the upcoming Shawcross review of the Prevent program leaked to the press a few days ago. My jaw hit the floor when I read it. I felt like I was screaming into the abyss. The most egregious part of the leak claimed that the Prevent program has, and I quote, taken an expansive view on right-wing terrorism, which has been so broad it has included mildly controversial or provocative forms of mainstream right-wing leaning commentary that have no meaningful connection to terrorism or radicalization. Let me say that part again. Mildly controversial or provocative forms of mainstream right-wing commentary that have no meaningful connection to terrorism or radicalization. This coming days after the Buffalo shooting in the United States, which was an act of white supremacist violence, of racial terror that was very much influenced by the mainstreaming and normalizing of white supremacist talking points such as the Great Replacement Theory. So what the Shawcross preview is claiming here, that there is no connection between terrorism, radicalization and mildly provocative forms of mainstream right-wing commentary, is not only absurd, but also wildly inaccurate and dangerous. So I wanted to expand on what exactly is the problem with the Shawcross report, and to do so I invited Anna Maya and Aaron Winter to be my guests on today's podcast. Anna and Aaron are two leading academics researching the far right and white supremacy in the United Kingdom. Aaron in particular researches the mainstreaming of far right extremism, while Anna researches state responses to white supremacist violence. Anna was also a guest on episode 19 of this podcast back in season 2, so make sure you listen to that as well. So now, without further ado, here's Anna and Aaron. Hi, I'm Anna Meyer. I am an assistant professor in the School of Politics and International Relations at the University of Nottingham. Uh, And my research focuses on institutional responses to white supremacist violence, primarily in Europe and the United States. Hi, my name's Aaron Winter. I'm an associate professor of criminology at the University of East London. And my research is on white supremacy in the far right and the relationship between mainstreaming and violence. Thank you both Aaron and Anna for being on the show. I wanted to speak to you both today because your research is on white supremacy and white nationalism and extremism, just like mine. And we've had recently the leak coming out from the uh, very anticipated Shawcross review of Prevent, where it seems that the argument that they're going to be making is that the UK is focusing too much on right-wing extremism. 
What did you think of that when you first saw that that leak coming out? Well, Maria, the timing of it really threw me because it came out shortly after the white supremacist mass shooting in Buffalo, New York. And as somebody who grew up in the US, that really, I don't want to say threw me for a loop because this sort of thing happens semi-regularly and we should talk more about that. But I think a lot of us were still reeling from that particular incident when the Shawcross leak came out. And to read an official government review of a counterterrorism, counterextremism program and see somebody say that the problem with these programs is not a lack of attention towards the far right and white supremacist violence, but rather too much focus on that was quite jarring and enraging, to be honest. It felt completely out of step with what is actually happening in the world. So my first reaction was just, this is both empirically wrong and also deeply insensitive. My reaction was just screaming like, what? Because I did not believe what I was reading. How about you, Aaron? I guess I was shocked, but not surprised considering in some sense it, it said the quiet part loud. I don't think there was a lot of doubt that the Shawcross review was going to in some way sanctify and protect, prevent I don't think we were going to get radical reform or removal of it. I think in some ways we have to put it in in context of not just that and our what seems like an inability and an unwillingness more accurately to think outside of prevent mm-hmm. in this country in terms of counterterrorism and counterextremism. The the debate has always has increasingly been pre- not only protecting the nation from extremism and terrorism but protecting prevent from criticism. If we look back into the unwillingness of prevent and other sort of state security apparatus programs, policies, and logics to focus on and tackle far-right racist extremism and terrorism, not that I think that's the solution to the problem. In a sense, the the very late turn to the far-right for prevent was sort of an exercise in the state and its defenders the independence of prevent patting themselves on the back saying, see, we're not Islamophobic. We're not racist. There is no double standard. I think what people don't realize is that prevent did not start about um, as a program to deal with extremism in gender it was very much focused on Islamic extremism. And it was only after the 2011 review where suddenly the word far right extremism popped up in the documents, but without any kind of backing or context or understanding. It read to me in 2011, the review was done under the the coalition government between the Tories and the Liberal Democrats, that it was, you know, some kind of disgruntled Lib Dem trying to make them talk about the far right, when in reality, the focus has always remained on this construction of Islamic extremism as a major threat in the UK. I think that's really important. One of the contexts for focusing on the far right was the the criticism. And and this is partly what I mean by not being able to think outside prevent. I mean, the criticism prevent for their Islamophobic double standard. But in a sense, then the, the that criticism gets appropriated. And that's not uncommon to be, look at the double standard now, the, you know, that double standard that we never paid attention to earlier, but in reverse. But I, I also think that it's, there is a long history of this. And the threat of the far right that evokes and calls upon counter-extremism and counter-terrorism is rarely a threat to the structures, institutions, and systems that from which counter-terrorism and counter-extremism emanate. 
So the threat of the far right was always already a, a problem of the mainstream and a problem of white institutions, structures, and systemic and structural racism. And so in a sense, uh, focusing on the far right, I think historically is usually a response to a problem, criticism specifically, but also a need to somewhat displace it from the mainstream. To pick up on that, really revealing that in the Shawcross leak, Shawcross describes the problem as the far right, which he clearly equates with neo-Nazism, having that definition expanded to include what he called mainstream right-wing behaviors. And I think that, getting back to what you were saying, Aaron, that particular equivalence of the far right problem in inverted commas and the idea of neo-Nazism or white genocide or pick your quote unquote extreme version of white supremacy really places the far right as this particularly exceptional thing. And what Shawcross has unintentionally done in noticing similarities between those sort of neo-Nazi kinds of ideas and the sort of idea of mainstream right-wing behaviors is noting the institutionalization of far-right ideas of Islamophobic, racist, white supremacist ideas within British state institutions. And I think that is a deeply uncomfortable sort of thread to poke at and is why the far-right gets equated with these very exceptional and harmful and problematic and things that we should think about kinds of violence and militant organizing, et cetera. But like the problem is so much larger than that. And no state sponsored institution is really going to be equipped to deal with that because these are the same institutions that are embedded within this broader system of structural white supremacy. For me, something that was really striking in all of this is that, and my own personal theory, is that Shawcross started reading a little bit more about the far right and started to see himself in some of those beliefs and was like, no, no, clearly this has gone too far, to quote directly from the leak is that they say that the program has taken an expansive view on right-wing terror, which has been so broad that it has included mildly controversial or provocative forms of mainstream right-wing leaning commentary that have no meaningful connection to terrorism or radicalization. And that language in particular coming after the Buffalo shooting, which really has shown a light on the mainstreaming of white supremacist rhetoric, such as the great replacement theory, really struck a chord with me because who gets to decide what is mildly controversial or provocative forms of right-wing commentary versus what is actual terrorism and links to radicalization, right? Because Shawcross himself has said some very damaging things in the past. You know, he's talked about how Islam is a fifth column and too many women who are Muslim are having too many children. And all European countries have vastly, very quickly growing Islamic populations. Those are things that he has said in the past. To what extent is that a mainstream right-wing leaning commentary versus extremist type of narrative and who gets to decide, right, what is dangerous and what is just the mainstream. Yeah. And regardless of whether you think that Shawcross's particular views are mildly controversial or deeply concerning, the fact remains that his particular views that he spouted about a decade ago now, where he called Islam the greatest threat to Europe going forward and put it in terms of, as you said, Maria, Muslim women having too many children, white Europeans being outnumbered in the future by Muslims. These are tropes directly from the Great Replacement Theory, 
which, despite being a white supremacist conspiracy theory, has become quite commonplace ideology among a lot of whom we might consider mainstream right-wing actors. And the fact that you see the same idea of white people being replaced by racialized Muslims, whether in Europe, whether in the United States, this idea cropping up as a motivational factor for the Buffalo shooter, for Brenton Tarrant in Christchurch, for any number of white supremacist attackers, and also in mainstream political discourse, and then to have people spouting those views say, well, no, actually, this is just mildly controversial. Those two things don't gel together. And perhaps Aaron can speak more to this. Tell us something about the mainstreaming of far-right views and the degree to which those are, to some extent, have always been towards the center, towards the mainstream, something that we have considered acceptable and somewhat normal in Europe and the U.S. I I mean, I think it's interesting that in some ways, the far right or the more extreme kind of white supremacist kind of neo-Nazi organizations have formed what sort of early in Mondon and I call sort of illiberal racism. They, They become a something that the mainstream keeps a distance from, but uses in order to appear more moderate, to appear more acceptable, and to continuously reinforce existing systemic institutional structural racism. But it's it's always telling that that a lot of these mainstream actors, they can see the overlap. That's why they can function this way. They know what needs to be distanced. It's also why it's always much more extreme forms to go back to the issue of neo-Nazis that get sort of exorcised from the, the mainstream body politic. Again, as you note, we see this with with Shawcross knowing sort of like the, these ideas are are too close for comfort, or I'm uncomfortable with calling them extremist. We also saw this again historically with when COINTELPRO, the FBI counterterrorism program, went after the Klan in the 1960s. They had to make a distinction between, you know, racist ideas and or you see this in the Homeland Security response to the mobilization of the far right in the wake of um Obama's election, when they they talked about a resurgence of Oklahoma City-like kind of militia era sort of radicalization, to use their term. And the mainstream sort of Republican Party and Fox News went after them. And they sort of backed away from this, this report, these indictments. So we have seen time and time again, the, the mainstream right see themselves in this. Now, they can cast it as demonization and make it out like it's left-wing homeland security plot against them. Obviously said that sarcastically, but they they know it's talking about them. And I think just not only did the Shawcross sort of, I guess, comment with a leak, which talked about the far right being too much of the focus of attention, not only did that come in the wake of the Buffalo shooting, as was noted at the beginning, but Marjorie Taylor Greene in the US attacked Democrats for focusing on white supremacist domestic terrorism, knowing that these are also the constituency that the Republican Party are going after. But in some ways, making it evident that this is this is this is a base. This is a a constituency they're going after. They know who they're talking to and they know how they're talking to when they give coded and more explicit versions of the Great Replacement. So asking this question to both of you as experts in this field, what would be your assessment of the threat from the far right? And I mean that in the global sense, not just in the UK and in the US, but the global far right, if we can call it something like that. What would be your assessment of the actual threat from the far right? I think how you conceptualize the far right here 
is important. For me, that category includes not only people like Brent and Tarrant, not only people like the Buffalo Shooter, not only groups like National Action, but the broader enabling structures, or what I call in my work, the permissive environment that allows those groups to operate. And that includes everything from politicians who we might call far right, like, for example, Marjorie Taylor Greene, but also all the way down to mainstream Republicans in the US who refuse to censure, speak out against, etc. People like Marjorie Taylor Greene, and who in doing so signal their comfort level with, if not her particular word choice on a particular day, but the underlying views and ideologies that she expresses uh, and the power structures that are reflected in those ideas. And that, to me, is an enormous threat, not only in the United States, not only in Western Europe, not only in Australia and New Zealand, but globally, because that particular ideology of white supremacy embeds itself within all sorts of foreign policy decisions, within national priorities, and within surveillance structures and law enforcement procedures that then get exported to other parts of the world. Technologies developed in, quote unquote, Western countries, for example, that then show up in Xinjiang, China, as part of genocidal actions against Uyghur Muslims. And so in that sense, if we conceptualize the far right as those committed to upholding broader white supremacist forms of political system and general political procedures that protect the historically dominant position of white people, then that to me is extremely concerning. Even if we were to subset the far right to just the sort of neo-Nazi groups, like I think the continued prevalence and upsurge in shootings, massacres, attacks, in those kinds of regards, the data speaks for itself that those have killed far more people in the US and Europe in recent years than any sort of Islamist group. I don't think that comparison is particularly helpful because a threat can be a threat in isolation without comparison. But for folks who might find that sort of data-driven analysis more convincing, then regardless of how you look at it, these most violent groups are quite threatening to safety and security, global North countries. The broader underlying ideology of white supremacy is globally threatening. I very much agree with Anna. I think that the point about the threat and overestimating or overrepresenting the threat is really important. And that's not because people don't get seriously hurt or killed. And that's not of great importance. But the thing is, is that when we talk about the threat, we're often talking about increased securitization. We're talking about theories of radicalization. We're thinking of treating something as, as some sort of external threat that's external to the system that the system then has to deal with and often fails. And it often fails, one, because it doesn't recognize it, it is unwilling to deal with it, or it is absolutely ill-equipped because it's part of the problem. And I think this goes to the argument about securitization and who's impacted by it. And I think in a sense, well, I you know because of my work on mainstreaming, I would say, of course, we have to focus not just on the idea of radicalization, that treat follows the journey out of the mainstream right because that is the trajectory of radicalization as a narrative and i mean the mainstream is often that which articulates and that which oversees and defends and manages the status quo the system the structures and institutions that reproduce white supremacy that forgive or permit or ignore or diminish the significance of white supremacist extremism and terrorism. The two places I think that are really high, important to highlight are the 
in the security state, in these counterterrorism and counterextremism programs, because in a sense, these are that which permitted and allowed. They are have legitimized and enforced Islamophobia and its effects. And they are very ill-equipped and they should not be entrusted to deal with racism. And I think that creates a real problem and a real need for people who work in this field to sort of tackle that. I think the other place we need to look is, and this goes back to the issue of former's vulnerability and, and, radic and radicalization, is we, when a white person attacks, um, we often have this approach to it, like more police, more security, more this, but also more understanding, more looking at their journey, looking at the points of vulnerability, the warning signs, for example, as the two cases we might be talking about, in which we, we treat white grievance as, as not only a necessary political sort of currency and constituency, but a, a, a valuable one that needs to be captured and reproduced in campaigns and policies around bordering, about security, about all these kind of things. And there's this level of, of sympathy and, 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 and representation of a white and narration of white grievance that is more about whiteness than it is about inequality that legitimizes white supremacy, that legitimizes racism, and that is compounded by the lack of attention to these groups and the overdetermined attention to racialized groups, in particular when it comes to counterterrorism, uh, Muslims. Hi, frenemies. Did you know that our frenemies book club is back? And our May book club book is none other than The Suspect Counterterrorism, Islam, and the Security State by Rizwan Sabir. Rizwan was our guest on the previous episode of the podcast, so if you haven't listened to that yet, please check it out. I will be giving away two copies of the book, and you have one more week to enter the giveaway. I will be announcing the winners on next week's episode. To enter the giveaway, all you have to do is support the show over at Ko-fi, or share a screenshot of your review of the show with us on our Twitter. The link for our Ko-fi is in our bio. And as you can tell, Enemies of the People has no advertising or sponsors. All the costs of the show are covered by myself and the incredible donations of our listeners. So thank you from the bottom of my heart for helping me continue to do this. You can always donate as a one-off donation over a coffee or join as a monthly supporter. As a monthly supporter, you also get access to our live book club Zoom meeting so we can all get together and talk to each other. It's one of the highlights of my months and I always look forward to it. Thank you from the bottom of my heart for helping me to continue to do the show. And now, back to the show. saying here then is that um, when we're talking about the threat from uh, white supremacy and white and far-right extremism it's not about isolated individuals but also it's not about traditional terrorist groups that have formal membership and you know a symbol and a flag or something like it people would like to think that that's the case but it's a it's a societal issue it's much bigger than just individuals who belong to national action for example or the kkk in the u.s 
Absolutely. And to pick up on Erin's point about the desire to individualize what is, as you correctly said, Maria, a societal problem, the sort of discourse that we get about the far right being populated by lone wolves, that there are a few focal groups here and there, but that the big attacks that you hear about are individual people acting alone who radicalized on their own. And everything about that narrative is both empirically incorrect and intentionally obfuscating in my mind. And so what I mean by that is it's incorrect to say that people like Britton Tarrant, like the Buffalo shooter, radicalized in isolation because they interacted with ideas propagated by groups like Combat 18, for example, which is a longstanding British neo-Nazi group with a number of white supremacist propaganda pieces, etc., online that used this broad network of resources and ideas available to them. And that is not something that happens in isolation. These are expansive global online communities that have deep, deep roots and have existed since the advent of the internet. And that persistence of engagement with online communities is one reason why the far right is able to be so robust as we move more and more online. So that's one thing. And I think that construction of lone wolves in this particular kind of violence tells us something about how we expect white supremacy whether constructed as extreme or mainstream, how we expect that to occur and how we expect it to be exceptional and individualized and how that construction helps us distance it from more societal problems. But then also the sort of lone wolf structure tells us something about how we then have to think about the particular problem of what is a group, what is a threat in this space and the desire to sort of put these hierarchical structures and formal names on these types of actors. And that if somebody does not formally formally belong to a particular group, that they're less of a threat or they're not somebody that we can track as easily. And like that is a particular policy problem of thinking about how you identify particular actors. But again, that's almost individualizing and gets us away from the broader notion that this is indeed a societal problem, a society level inquiry that we all have to have with each other if we're serious about this. And I just don't think that the either legal structures, the discursive structures, the insistence upon thinking about these things as particularly individual problems, individual attacks that we react to, does much for us in terms of actually getting at the underlying ideology that is extremely prevalent that so many people buy into, even if unintentionally and unwittingly, and lets us continue to think about this as a quote unquote terrorism problem rather than a racism, Islamophobia problem that sometimes manifests as extreme violence. Right, I absolutely agree. And I think it's, it's interesting because in a sense, the need to look at it as a societal problem, particularly in terms of sort of racism and race and sort of racist actions and racist ideas and, and racial inequality is also at a moment when we're at sort of like peak denial and emboldening of these kind of actions. The lone wolf thing really strikes me because in a sense, that's a term that the far right uses. And I find sometimes the analysis reproduces their ideas and their concepts. And I think we have to really challenge it because in a sense, the, the lone wolf can be a strategic or a tactical idea, and it can be a, an idea to diminish the responsibility and the significance of a movement. 
from different interested parties. And I think we really have to challenge that in the same way we have to challenge the way in which the mainstream uses white grievance to analyze white grievance mobilized organizations and movements. So I was going to circle back to what you said earlier, Aaron, about this, the reviews of prevent and all these things related with prevent seem to be about responding to the criticism rather than addressing the main issues, the main problems of prevent and thinking beyond it. The reason I bring this up is because there is, we've already talked about the timing of the leak being straight after the Buffalo shooting, but another aspect of it, of the timing that struck me as well, is that it was about, what, 10 days or a week after the report that was, was it the policy exchange report on Prevent, and that was uh, forwarded by former Prime Minister David Cameron, in which he very clearly says that a lot of Muslim critics of Prevent have been acting in a way, essentially, that enables terrorism. So it's a very strong condemnation of critics of prevent, but specifically Muslim critics of prevent and linking any kind of criticism of prevent with a direct national security threat. So there is, this is also part of the timing, right? Part of the conversation and part of the way that those in power that are in charge of writing and rewriting and reviewing prevent see the problem and see the criticism. Absolutely. But I also think that like, you know, many of us are critics, but the onus is always going to be on the, sort of racialized and securitized community. I mean, in the prevent, in the in the prevent training, they even have sections on on like how to deal with like what is criticism or prevent. Like it's so it's so defensive, so neurotic as well, that it actually places its own defense within the training. But I think Cameron revealed so much in that, you know, this is the system we have. This is the narrative we have about terrorism and extremism, and you're not allowed to challenge it. And I'm afraid report after report, review after review, I do feel that its defenders and its use have themselves become emboldened. And I I don't think we're going to sort of be able to dismantle it. In fact, right now it's coinciding very specifically and very strategically with anti-CRT, anti-decolonial backlash and initiatives, with free speech initiatives, with transphobic initiatives, with a whole bunch of other sort of reactionary initiatives, which hit communities, often the most vulnerable communities, but also hits education quite significantly and targets education where we can speak about this, where we can criticize this, where we can analyze it. And again, as you as you rightly note and Cameron revealed, who is allowed to do it? There is a hierarchy or there is a very, very different burden on, on people. And whether you come into the remit of it, I've often thought like, you know, there was a moment there where they were pretending to be equal, even though I, I sort of deplore the politics of equivalence because it ignores power. Um, but that, and then they pulled the far right out of that, out of that. But when the far right was the focus, in line with other narratives, white grievance narratives, particularly about the left behind, even the way the far right was looked at and racism was looked at, it was in an absolutely classist manner. It was, it was particularly focused on the working class. And I don't think that even if they're, go- they're, they're not going to address inequalities, they're going to reproduce them, no matter how this operates. 
what the David Cameron's comments picking up on the policy exchange report really underscored, I think, is the inseparability of the terrorism frame from the Muslims as suspect community frame. And not only Muslims as suspect community, but any group that tries to ally with racialized Muslims, any group that similarly tries to challenge state power, whether through a race vector, through a religion vector, through a class vector, or some combination of those things. And that's one reason why I don't necessarily think that the counterterrorism or even counterextremism framework or policy space is going to be of any use to those of us actually interested in countering the roots of the far right, because these are not spaces designed to deal with violence or political contention that fundamentally does not challenge established systems of power. These particular policy spaces exist to uphold existing power dynamics and to ensure that any challenges or perceived challenges to those power dynamics are dealt with swiftly and exceptionalized and criminalized so thoroughly that even somebody raising a critique of a government policy program, which we do in other policy spaces all the time, gets accused of enabling terrorism, this category of violence we've constructed as the most abhorrent, requiring complete opprobrium. And anybody who's accused of associating with that, like that is just one of the most horrible accusations we've constructed that you can fling at somebody. And so trying to transport that particular frame of this policy area that exists to uphold existing power dynamics to the space of the far right, which even as far right actors oftentimes do not support existing governments in Britain and the United States are pushing for something more akin to a white ethno state or even more extreme versions of those particular ideas. Like fundamentally, those groups are upholding existing ideas about white supremacy and white people as dominant which exist in somewhat softer forms in existing political institutions in governmental spaces. Those are the ideologies upon which our countries exist. And so there is fundamentally no space for transporting a policy area counterterrorism that exists to uphold those kinds of ideas onto ideologies, onto actors that are not going to be the sort of fundamental challenge to the status quo that one might assume an Islamist extremist actor would be, or an anarchist or far left communist type of actor might be, at least in the eyes of the state. And so I just don't think that like the sort of, even those people who would like to reform, prevent, and sort of expand its, its remit to include the far right in a more serious way, like that's simply not going to work in the discourse of terrorism or extremism because that's not what terrorism and extremism as categories are designed to do. I couldn't agree more. And in fact, that got me thinking back when we were talking about the, the threat of the far right. I mean, we have to be honest. I mean, the threat of the far right, they're not a threat to white supremacy, patriarchy, uh, capitalism. They're not a threat to these institutions or these systems. But I also think I, just one thing about the kind of how we tackle them and the way in which prevent is the assumed logic and assumed program. We have to be aware, and this, I guess this is where, and I, I apologize for misappropriating the name of the podcast, but this is where I scream into the abyss. I can't understand, and I've asked this question 
like numerous times and I've never had an answer. I've had like a lot of blank stares. Like, why are people so interested in far-right terrorism if they don't seem to care about the far-right racism or white supremacy? What ends up happening is because the structural causes and structural implications of these things, of these programs, this focus on, you know, the focus on extremism and terrorism and exceptionalism. What ends up happening is, is often the research kind of every time there's an event or an incident or an individual, I've act there's a deep dive into the parameters of that case. And then the next time something happens, you reproduce that and you do another deep dive. And we get we get further away in this kind of like repetitive process, further away from structures and systems. And, and causal factors that are beyond the individual. There's an unwillingness to look at the wider picture and the wider systems and structures or the mainstream. Between us, the actual, you know, the field of terrorism and extremism studies and CV and stuff like that needs to radically change because they're the ones also being listened to. I've been nodding furiously throughout all of this, and especially that final point about the field of extremism, terrorism studies, which is the field that we are in. There is so much work to be done in the field itself about recognizing all of the things that we've been talking about, the the wider issues of white supremacy, but also the role that we play in creating and, and, and legitimizing certain forms of knowledge and understanding about what terrorism and extremism is. I think that um, some areas of the field are self-reflective, but generally, I think a common theme in all of this is that those in power, and I include academics in this as well, need a serious moment of self-reflection about the role that everybody plays in perpetuating systems of oppression because we we are all embedded in them absolutely and then and then on top of that we also have the academics who are explicitly fueling legitimizing the far right oh yeah that's that's an entire episode absolutely (laughs) but it's so frustrating because the work is there the research is out there and you it's not like a new field of study that people have to develop. It's the work has already been done and it is being done, but there is very little willingness to listen and to actually asking the right questions, asking the right people, and instead a reliance on certain individuals that just continue to perpetuate a particular narrative that is palatable to those in power. Yeah. And a point that I'll, that I'll make on this is I get a little uncomfortable with conversations about protections and mental health support for majority white researchers who do work on terrorism and extremism. And that's not because I don't think that they need it. Like looking at terrible images, reading terrible, hateful manifestos day in and day out does do something to your brain and it's not positive. However, those conversations never seem to be accompanied by concern for actual targets and victims of terrorist violence, and in particular, white supremacist violence. And that dovetails quite nicely with the point that you made, Maria, about the fact that a lot of work and research on these movements and on these groups is already out there. And it's located in these communities that have been historically victimized and targeted. It's located in Black political thought, um, in Indigenous political thought. It's located in working class communities and queer communities perhaps not in political science or criminology all the time, but reading more broadly, it doesn't take that much work to find it. And I wonder about the extent to which having a bit of reversal of 
our own thinking in terms of why we're doing this and which particular actors in this broader ecosystem of white supremacy we are most concerned with. And I think the correct answer should be those who are unwillingly brought into it by being targets of this violence and of this harm. And doing that, I think, would perhaps provoke a massive and productive reorientation into whose voices we are centering and what kind of solutions we're thinking about. But that would require decentering ourselves as academics and as overwhelmingly white academics. And that's not something I'm sure the academy is prepared to do. The academy tends to reinforce power structures rather than challenge them. Indeed. You know, I've been doing this for about over 20 years, been working on this topic. And I have to say, I've been trolled by and threatened by neo-Nazis and white supremacists, but also with the passive aggressiveness and trolling from gatekeepers in the in the field. But the gatekeepers of this are also what insulate these kind of programs. And when we look at the Shawcross, to go back to our earlier discussion, we're dealing with that as a way of insulating and protecting, prevent and similar type of programs and logics. But we also have gatekeepers who may be slightly critical who are also insulating it. And I think what they say about the Shawcross report from often liberal, centrist, pragmatic, and professionally dependent positions, dependent on the state, depending on the security apparatus, will actually inform how this is interpreted more broadly. And I think that's important to watch as well. As a final question for you guys, a bit of prediction. After everything that we've seen coming out of from the leak and the general feeling, you know, after the, the policy exchange report and the Shawcross leak, what do you think will actually be in the actual review of Prevent coming out at some point in the summer? Is there anything that you think is going to be more shocking than the leaks? What do you think the report will look like generally? I tend to avoid prediction. I was uh, When I was a PhD student, one of the big debates in sociology was, should sociologists be able to predict things? And I was, <laughs> just said no. I think if, we, if we've seen the worst of it, that's going to be an opportunity for its defenders the prevent defenders and defenders of the Shawcross to say, see, most of it is quite moderate and nuanced, right? But I also, there's probably going to be a, a lot more on critics of prevent. I do think there is going to be more of a focus on that than has been sort of leaked so far. Much like Aaron, I'm wary of being too predictive, but I think generally what we'll see in the Shawcross review, and excuse my language, is more reactionary bullshit. <laughs> I mean... It's just striking that a pivot in prevent in the smallest, most neoliberal way towards some acknowledgement of the far right as potentially a problem then provokes such a serious backlash and reversal from the government insofar as saying that actually, we've gone far, way too far with this very small gesture, and now we're implicating people in positions of power, and that's bad. So let's completely 180. Tells us something about how unreliable the state is as a partner in any sort of anti-racist, anti-Islamophobic fight here. And it, if anything, this particular Shawcross League, and I suspect the overall Shawcross report, once it's released, will just underscore that particular point for me that any sort of actual change in this space is going to have to come 
as it always does, from below, from the streets, from grassroots organizing within targeted communities, and that the state will continue to try to clamp down on that and paint those critics and activists as enabling terrorism as time goes on. I don't see a particularly productive way that that resolves itself, but I do think that that is the logical outcome of this and sort of where we're headed more more of the same, unfortunately. Thank you. Thank you so much, Anna and Aaron, for coming on. And let's see what happens when the Shawcross review does come out. And hopefully we can talk about it more then. Thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you both. That was Anna Meyer and Aaron Winter. You can find Anna on Twitter at Anna Meyer PS. You can catch my previous conversation with Anna on white supremacy and terrorism on episode 19 of Enemies of the People. Aaron is on Twitter at Aaron Z. Winter. His latest book is Reactionary Democracy, How Racism and the Populist Far-Right Became Mainstream, co-written with Aurelian Mondon, and it's available now. Really, you should all get it as soon as possible. It's a fantastic, eye-opening book, and I'm pretty sure it will be a future Frenemies Book Club book. If you're enjoying Enemies of the People, please tell everyone you know. Rate and review the show. Subscribe, follow, listen to your favorite episodes again and again. Share your favorite episodes with at least five people. You can easily click the share button on the app that you're using to listen to the podcast right now. Go! You don't even have to pause it, just click the share button. As you know, we have no sponsors or advertising or a network of any kind, so we really rely on your word of mouth to get the podcast out there. You can also help keep enemies of the people going and growing by supporting us over at Ko-fi, either by buying me a one-off coffee or by becoming a monthly supporter. I'm trying to raise enough money to build a better website for our show, where we can post show notes as well as the transcripts of every episode. Remember, I'm also giving away two free copies of our May Book Club book, and you can enter the giveaway by reviewing our show, tweeting us a screenshot of your review, or by donating over at Ko-fi. I will be announcing the date of our book club next week, as well as our two winners. You can find us on Twitter at EnemiesPod. I'm on Twitter at Maria W. Norris. Thank you so much for listening, and I'll see you next week for more Enemies of the People. Yeah.